Okay. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll <clears throat> I'll introduce what we're what I'm planning to do tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us through the day. We thank you for your daily faithfulness to us, and the fact that you renew our mercies to your mercies to us every morning. We're grateful <clears throat> for the chance to be here tonight. We pray that you would guide us into truth in our thinking and in our lives and our daily conduct. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we, I think, finished sufficiently um, the, the Wesleyan um, stream of Protestantism what is involved in that <clears throat> uh, thinking, that uh, doctrinal position, which is the position um, of our church and denomination. Um, and, you know, I think I've mentioned this as we've moved through different um, streams or different beliefs. I may sound contradictory here. Um, doctrine right doctrine, clear doctrine, accurate biblical doctrine is critically important, okay? Uh, Paul told Timothy, <clears throat> as a young pastor, he said, take very close attention, pay close attention to yourself and to the doctrine. In doing this, you will both save yourself and those who hear you. So that implies that our eternal destiny is affected, impacted by doctrine. So it's important. Having said that, let me give you a quote in 1700s language that'll have to kind of explain <clears throat> from John Wesley, founder of the Methodists. He said, and he was a stickler on doctrine, but he said, right tempers, meaning attitudes, moods, so forth, behavior, disposition. Right tempers are more important than right opinions. Okay? So, yes, proper teaching and so forth is very important. But to have a tender, um, God-following, God-obeying, Christ-like heart is of more value. How do we know that? Because the people take the message to the church in Ephesus. Um, in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, you you believe correctly, and he says, in fact, you even hold church trials for people that show up and claim to be apostles. And remember, they didn't have social media and ID cards and all that. So anybody could show up and say, hey, I'm, you ever heard of Paul? Yeah, well, I'm him. Um, <clears> that very little way to check that out. 
So it says they held trials. He said, you tried those who said they were apostles and weren't, and you tested their doctrine and so forth. But then Jesus said, I'm fine with that, but he said, I've got one problem with you. You've left your first love. The earnestness, zeal um, of a, a newborn Christian they had settled into a kind of legalistic and doctrinally perfect way of behaving, but they lost the fire in their heart. They were Pharisees. They had just gone to dotting every I, crossing every T, but nothing else. So, um, <clears throat> all of these different groups, we looked at, this won't be true with cults, okay? But obviously, we, we've talked about... Um, talked about Roman Catholics, we've talked about um, Calvinism, we've talked about you know, all these different beliefs, um, many of which we may have issues of difference in doctrine. But in every case, in spite of some of those differences in doctrine, and some of those differences are not necessarily insignificant, there's still no question that... <clears throat> in spite of some of these things, they'll be in heaven. Uh, we, we're, I'm not saying, even though I'm really a stickler on doctrine, I don't like to even hear people say <laughs> incorrect stuff. Um, I'll just give you a fast illustration. People say, you know, we're all born sinners. That drives me nuts. We're not born sinners. We're born sinful. That's different. Okay, now, can you go to heaven if you say, we're all born sinners? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, doctrine's important. However, um, a tender heart that houses God is of more value. God will straighten our heads out um, once, we get, once we get to heaven. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the last... Um, non-cult uh, Christian movement that we want to look at um, is the, I'm calling it Pentecostal slash charismatic movement, okay? And there's a reason for the different, uh, different terms there. Um, we do meet next Wednesday night. And I wouldn't be surprised that I might not get through all of this tonight, partly because of the fact that you, you this, this is a diverging um, kind of movement, okay? Starts out in a sense in one place, and it's, it's about like the Nile River mouth, okay? There's all kinds of streams. So, <clears throat> let me first of all, um, just quickly look at the the history of the modern, okay, of the modern, and uh, the history of the modern Pentecostal movement, not charismatic yet necessarily, okay, <clears throat> um, and it particularly belongs to almost well. You could say in the last decade of the 1800s, there was some beginnings of Pentecostalism. Um, but 
here's just a thumbnail sketch. One of the earliest, uh, you could say, organizations of Pentecostalism, and we'll look at the beliefs in a second, was in 1901. There was a guy <coughs> um, named, his last name was Parham, okay? P-A-R-H-A-M. He established a little Bible college in Topeka, Kansas. This was 1901, okay? Um, he was an ordained Methodist preacher. So he preached and was very familiar with, and the whole school was based on the Methodist Wesleyan Arminian theology of two works of grace designed to deal with the twofold nature of sin. Conversion for sinning and entire sanctification for the sinful nature. Okay? Now, um, I don't know the exact circumstances, but some of the students and faculty praying for people to be um, filled with the Spirit, which is a synonym for being sanctified or heart purified. In the middle of some of that, somewhere, somebody had, and the term I'm going to use here is ecstatic utterances, okay? Um, and it caught on in that little Bible college that ecstatic utterances were a proof of being baptized or filled with the Spirit, okay? Now, it spread, for some reason, it spread not, uh, well, a little bit of it spreads uh, southward, maybe middle southern. And a few denominations came out of that that are still there, and, but they usually, there's four or five of them that use a term that comes out of this little Bible college and this experience that they had there. Of, they use the term fire baptized. Okay. There's some denominations that are, you know, the, the Church of God fire baptized this or that. Okay. Um, th that is, to this day, there's still existence. They're small, um, but nevertheless, that's a little remnant out of this Wichita deal. Most of the teaching, for some reason, maybe students went that way. I, I don't know. Uh, couldn't find anything on it. But it that teaching from this little school in Topeka spread westward, okay? And in <clears throat> about 19, roughly 1906, uh, 7, 8, somewhere in there, um, there was another Methodist minister that began a revival, you know, preaching every night, like tent meeting, that kind of thing. And he... Uh, carried this out in a mission, like a Skid Row mission or kind of like that, in a place called Azusa, California, okay? L.A. There is a university there today, um, Azusa Pacific. Um, it, it's still in operation. Um, but at any rate, it's not Pentecostal, but at any rate, um, that was where they had 1,000 nights, they said. They had preaching for three years, nearly three years, 
every single night, okay? And the, the, the minister that kind of kicked this off also came out of a Methodist background. And there, there was higher than even in the Topeka place. There was higher emphasis on um, speaking in unknown tongues as proof that the Holy Spirit baptized you uh, or, you know, but, but the but, here's the, hope we don't get lost in the weeds here. For this group, they treated the baptism with the Holy Spirit as a third work of grace, okay? You get saved. They taught that you, the carnal nature is removed in the baptism of the Spirit. Well, no, in a second work of grace, but they reserved the baptism of the Spirit for a third crisis experience, crossroads experience, and in that one, and I don't really know what you got, um, except for the proof that you were baptized with the Spirit. Entire sanctification, heart purity, baptized with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, are synonyms. Okay? They mean exactly the same thing. Just like we don't say you were saved but you weren't converted. That's something else. No. Conversion, new birth, born of the Spirit, saved. Those are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. So there's no grounds whatsoever for treating this as another, further work of grace. Okay? But anyway, that's what the Azusa group did. To take a second here, the Pentecostal movement then came out of the Wesleyan Arminian holiness movement. Now the holiness movement it was a huge phenomenon in the United States beginning right around well it was associated with Methodism so the Methodists I mentioned to you last week the overwhelming wave of Methodism went through America but by this 18 right about the tail end of the Civil War the Methodist Church had already begun They'd now been in America for almost 100 years, and of course in Britain for nearly 150, okay? So it was an old enough movement and denomination to start going rotten, okay? And they, what they did was they did what a lot of denominations do, um, maybe for good. They, of course, con were concerned that their clergy were, would be well-educated, okay? Um, and that demand began to come not only from denominational hierarchy, but as the Methodist Church got more popular and everybody was a Methodist, it became the social thing to be a Methodist. So if you moved into some little town, you know, in Illinois that was a farming community and, you know, they got 400 people in town and you're opening the new bank, where do you go to church? Are you going to go to the Episcopals, who there were three of them at the church? Are you know, or you, well, you wouldn't be a Catholic because Catholics, that was, you know, that was horrible in those days. Uh, it's the Irish and all those people. Um, are you going to go to some, um, you know, little log cabin Baptist? No. You're the banker in town. You're the mayor. You're on the city council. You're going to the Methodists. 
The Methodists have a nice big brick building and they're on the main corner because that's the most popular, biggest denomination in the United States. So when you get success and affluence and popularity, you go down. And so they couldn't have bumpkin preachers. You know what I mean? Guys who only knew God. Um, you got to have somebody that knows Heiliger um, Geshishka. Anybody here know what that means? <laughs> it's holy history, okay? It's German. Everybody went to German theologians, and some even went across the ocean to German. Germans were the big new philosopher theologians, okay? So, as the Methodist church began to get popular and affluent and getting into what was called higher education, they were introduced to something called higher criticism. Higher criticism was a picking, critical, tear apart um, deconstruction of the Bible. And the Methodists uh, began to join some of the other older uh, mainline denominations, and they discovered you know, they discovered all the things in the Bible that didn't really happen. <laughs> um, you know, you remember when in the story when Jesus cast out the demons of Legion and they went into the swine and they all ran down a steep hill into the lake? Well, that didn't happen. Because right where that location is Genesaret. They don't have a steep bank that goes into the lake. So it didn't happen. Now we know that. Because we went to school. Okay? And you know, the, uh, the, the, there wasn't a separation of the Red Sea because it's really called the Reed Sea. And it was just what happened was enough of a kind of a wind and some sand, you know, and shallow anyway. And so kind of a causeway was there and they could just wade across and they were fine. So, well, you know, and so you do all this and you immediately start dropping the main doctrines. We got to be saved. Our hearts need to be purified from inbred sin. We got to walk with God. That's... We don't need that. Well, as those, as primarily the Methodists, begin to abandon, especially the second work of sanctification, then the Methodist church began to disintegrate very slow, still continued to grow up into the 1950s. But at any rate, those churches then and pastors that were bothered that the Methodists were going liberal, dropping the, the um, significant doctrines, that they began to join together in camp meetings. Um, they'd go out to, in, you know, just a grove of trees and take tents, and they'd preach for a week. Um, that, began to being, uh, that began a huge movement that grew into what was called the National Camp Meeting Association. Um, and then they added the word holiness, the National Holiness Camp Meeting Association. Um, places all over the country were 
Methodist camp meetings. But they weren't associated with or condoned by or um, approved by the Methodist church. So you had quite an interdenominational group and that it's called the holiness movement. And that's been from the 1800s, um, early 1800s, clear into like the 1950s. Now that the holiness movement kept going, um, but it's pretty well run out of gas by now. Um, many of the denominations that the Methodists are, except for some outposts, the Methodists totally abandoned their foundation. Well, anyway, that was called the Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement, really, you, you can say fortunately or unfortunately, the Holiness Movement was, was the birthplace of the Pentecostal Movement, and which became the Charismatic Movement. Okay? Now, during this Azusa Street revival that lasted three years, the people in pre, the preacher, the main people involved in it as it spread, maintained that they were a thoroughgoing part of the Methodist doctrine believing holiness movement. Well, so holiness leaders, and there were a lot of them, famous evangelists, came to check it out. Well, to a, to a person over this three-year period, they appreciated preaching that you need to get saved, appreciated preaching that God can cleanse our hearts of the remains of inherited sin after we're saved, but they absolutely denied that ecstatic utterances unknown tongues proved the baptism you were baptized with the Holy Spirit and if you didn't have that you weren't you didn't have the Holy Spirit okay they flat disagreed with that and so the holiness movement and then Pentecostalism began to drift drift apart yeah You got to quit asking questions that are for the very end. Um, no, I debated whether. Let's just say this: um, extensive, extensive linguist anthropology, so forth, and religious, you know, people have analyzed ecstatic utterances. There isn't. I don't know of any study, and I've read a lot of stuff. I don't know of any study that that doesn't say there are no normal human language linguistic patterns in those ecstatic utterances. Okay? I, I, I literally don't know. Um, this little book, by the way, um, this is a fantastic little book, and I don't think you can get it. Um, it's called No Uncertain Sound. But anyway, it's an exegetical study of 1 Corinthians and so forth and deals mostly with the charismatic, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and one of the authors was my, um, one of my professors in seminary. And he gave me this book when it first came out, and I don't think they ever sold it. It was printed for the Wesleyan Church denomination. 
Um, and it was, an, it was a study of and a response to for their denomination of the just explosion of the charismatic movement um, in the early 70s. Okay, this was put out in 1975. Well, he gave me a copy. And in fact, he gave me all the background notes that were condensed into this little book. Um, and so I, I really had a privilege there of a bunch of research um, that, that went into this little statement that the Wesleyan Church um, made. But <clears throat> now, it wasn't very long after um, the 1908, you could say, was the official start, in a sense, of the Pentecostal churches. Out of that Azusa Street revival, there were three streams that came out of that Azusa Street revival, and they would fit under what's called Pentecostal, not necessarily charismatic. And I'll tell you the difference in a minute, and you see why we're never going to make it through this subject. But anyway... Um, there were three streams that came out of the Azusa Street thing, which was considered um, traditional Pentecostalism. Number one, there was a group, and they never really formed a cohesive denomination that, that had a name to it, okay? But they were, they, re, they retained some Methodism in that they still believed in two works of grace to deal with sin, but then a separate third work to be filled with the Spirit, okay? I think they just kind of splintered or whatever because there's no particular, except for some of those fire-baptized names down in the South, okay? There was a second group, and the second group um, clearly believed in conversion, obviously, but they did not believe necessarily Let's just say they didn't emphasize it much. They did not believe or did not emphasize an instantaneous filling of the Spirit in which our hearts are cleansed from inherited depravity or what Paul called entire sanctification. They de-emphasized that, okay? They didn't believe in a third work of grace. They believed that you were filled in a second work of grace and spoke, spoke in... Um, tongues as proof, evidence that you were filled with the Spirit. But the business of heart purity, which the Methodists had taught, and you find in the day of Pentecost, our Peter, our hearts were purified by faith. They denied the instantaneousness of it and treated it as a lifelong progress, gradual process, okay? But the filling of the Spirit was itself instantaneous, and the evidence of it was speaking in tongues, okay? That group became, there were several names, Assemblies of God are the largest, were then, the largest of that group. There were a couple other groups that were in agreement, but a lot of the denominations, by the way, back through those 100 years ago, 150 years ago that started, were not necessarily started because they had huge disagreements. A lot of it was geography. I mean, you just, you know, you don't have interstate highways, you don't have planes, you don't have phones, you don't, so, boy, if you're in East Texas, you're never going to be 
you aren't going anywhere. For, for the longest you, trip you've ever taken is 25 miles to grandma's house. And so you had a lot of regional denominations that didn't really cross paths till you got up into the 1900s and travel and communication multiplied, okay? There's a third group then, and they go under the name for a long time and from today. In fact, they split out, uh, they split from the Assemblies of God in 1916, okay? And they're called United Pentecostal Church International, okay? Now, we, I would say, we have a major quarrel with them because they're what the, the nickname for them is Jesus only. Ever heard of that? The Jesus only movement? They deny the Trinity. <laughs> um, they still believe in emphasizing the gifts, including speaking in tongues. And again, the proof that you are, I guess, filled with Jesus, I don't know. I'm not going to get off into the Trinitarian issue, but there's an ancient, ancient heresy that goes clear back into the, what, four or five hundreds, um, called modalism, that there's really only one person in the Godhead, not three. And those, those, that person was first revealed as God the Father, and then revealed as Jesus the Son, and then revealed as the Holy Spirit, but there's not three persons in the Trinity. And so they just, it, modalism comes from the term that they, uh, the person, the person of the Trinity revealed himself in three different ways and roles, okay? So, um, and they're still pretty big, um, but anyway, um, they're out there. Now, um, let's move then to um, the charismatics. Now, um, charism or, um, you know, from which the term charismatic comes from just means gift, okay? So this is an emphasis on the gifts. Um, the lists of the gifts are given, 1 Corinthians 12, um, I can't remember where else. F F Ephesians has got one of the lists. Um, but at any rate, there's three different places. Um, now, how in the world do the, the Pentecostals are, this I don't mean as a derogatory term. In fact, I think it's a, it's a good term. Okay, the, the old line Pentecostals are more uh, disciplined and rigid. I don't mean rigid in a bad way. They, their doctrine is clearer, plainer. They know where they're at, okay? And many, I would say also, forgot to mention this, of Pentecostals are generally Arminian. They may not be Wesleyan as far as the second work of grace, but they are Arminian in free will you can backslide. You don't, we don't endorse it and hope you do, but it's possible, okay? Um, so they would be Arminian. Most of them are. Charismatic is kind of a new ball game, okay? The Charismatics, um, 
are and or descendants, you could say, of the Pentecostals, but but they are all over the map as far as doctrines. Okay, now especially the Charismatics. Remember, I think last week I mentioned that little hierarchy of authority, scripture, tradition, and by tradition what the early church teach, uh, reason, and then finally experience. The Charismatics, um, and here again, I'm, even though I can't hardly n- not be, you know, critical, I guess you'd say in some things, I'm not saying that if you're charismatic, you're going straight to hell. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but the charismatics, they'd probably go nuts over this. But reason, I don't think they've ever heard of it. Okay? Tradition, they, they have no, they don't know anything about it. They're about like the people that they interview on the streets who don't even know who the first president was, okay? Um, they don't know anything about early church history, all the doctrinal issues, the great heresies that were dealt with, um, all that the, the martyrs and all the great saints went through to give us the scripture we have today and the, Christ, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They don't know anything about that. They don't care anything about any of that. It's all... Just hold your hands in your air, in the air, until your hands are blue. Okay, that's the only thing you do, and you sway a lot. Okay, um, and you have, as the joke's been around for 20 years, 30 years, you have uh, music that is four words, three notes, and two hours. Okay, um, that's the charismatics. They have exalted experience or meaning emotions. Emotions rules everything. Okay? I went to seminary with some charismatics. Um, They, I didn't really know, as far as just people, we sat and ate lunch together and we didn't stab each other with forks and things like that. But I just never got them. They don't care. It's just, we had this Chinese guy, and um, he loved the Lord. I know he was. He was a good guy. And he, he'd gotten um, out during Mao Zedong's day, but he'd gotten out of China as a kid, and then he grew up in most of America. But he still had a really, really strong accent. I don't care, and I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but I mean, you could go back in the Old Testament and talk about Leviticus and ha- figuring out what kind of um, sores, running sores you had, and he'd get out of that. He would always say, that's a speak of the tongue. It's a speak of the tongue. No, it's not. But that's all he could see anywhere. But again, he didn't care about doctrine. He would he would bite on any, yeah, that's okay, I don't care. We don't care about that, he said. We don't worry about that. Well, you've got to worry about the Trinity, and you've got to worry about the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation. Oh, you know, we don't worry about all that. We just preach the gospel. Well, the gospel happens to be sin, salvation, the atonement. Those things matter. But the modern charismatic movement is all about emotionalism. That's all that they care about. Um, and so, they're also 
um, caught up in a hyper uh, giftism, and and a lot of it, they they high on the list is um, ecstatic utterance, which may or may not be in public or pub or, or what do you call it, a private prayer language, but also a lot of the different uh, supposed gifts of uh, knowledge, wisdom, discernment. Um, and it, I have a word, knowledge. Um, and also um, uh, identifying, well, I've visited with, I've argued with, I've heard a lot of um, literally, I suppose, you know, whooping cough, it's, it's a whooping cough demon. Uh, there's demons under every tree. There's demons everywhere. And everything, there's toenail fungus demon. And the reason you've got that is there's a demon. Um, we're in a fallen world. People get heart attacks. There's no heart attack demon. We die. We get cancer. There's not a cancer demon. You just die. I, don't wish, <laughs> I wish there was a cancer demon we could get rid of. But get rid of. That's not the Bible we're going to die and we have all kinds of ailments and trouble and tribulation and yes there's a devil and yes he is loose um, but th this it just becomes um, well again it's ruling by emotion and emotion is the least trustworthy faculty we have as humans Emotions, they're, they're most easily turned aside, misinformed. Um, again, well, let me quote Wesley here. I've told you this little quote before, uh, and I don't think it's peculiar just to him. But there are three things that uh, um, appear to be, three things for this, for, uh, as a source of things that appear to be supernatural. God. Satan, and your own overheated imagination, okay? Now, I think about 90%, well, I don't want to give the devil that low of a percent. Maybe he's more than um, we give him credit for. But most of the problems in churches, most of the doctrines that get whacked out and new crazy stuff that comes along is your over, overheated imagination, I, don't, I know the devil's got a place and he surely loves to create um, confusion. But like the Corinthians who we'll maybe get a chance to look at here. You know, the Lord said, Paul said to the Corinthians, God is not the author of confusion and disorder. He just isn't. Chaos. Um, well, I've got to keep going. Um, <clears throat> the charismatic movement just really, it was, and I lived through it. I mean, I was in early days of seminary, maybe a year or two before seminary. I went to seminary, still in college, when the charismatic movement just exploded. And the charismatic movement was not necessarily accepted by, or you'll give an open arms, by the Pentecostals. 
because, again, partly, they had no concern for doctrine. It was just running the aisles and, you know, singing until you fell over sideways. And there was no content. It was cotton candy preaching, um, like meringue topping on a pie. There's just nothing to it. But you come out of there just starry-eyed. Boy, I tell you what, you know. Um, anyway. Um, any, any questions about what my opinion is? Um, anyway, so even the, the but the, the Pentecostals, again, who had a clearer doctrine stand and, you know, um, weren't necessarily accepting of that. One of the things that the charismatic movement did do, though, and where they drew from and where they and I don't mean this in a bad connotation, but what they invaded were all of the main line churches. Now, they start a lot of their own, too. But they made great inroads in what we would call the main line um, liturgical churches, ritual and so forth. Um, and I'm saying nothing here to those of you who may come out of all those different backgrounds. But um, if you, you know, dead Episcopal and dead Lutheran and dead Methodist and dead Presbyterian, where you've got the robes and the candles and the repetitious stuff Sunday after Sunday, um, and there's no, there's no emotion. God gave us emotions. Now, I don't like emotions run amok, and they can easily do that. But God gave us emotions. And when you starve emotions, and in worship, there's, there's no warmth. There's no fire. You know, there's no, um, your heart is warmed. Then you'll be drawn, well, let's put it this way, hungry sheep will go eat loco weed, okay? Because they're starved. And so the charismatic movement with its upbeat music and its activity and so forth, I think at first um, filled a, a felt need, an emptiness. Um, you just go, you know, you go through the same rituals and you do the same and you go get in your car and you beat the whoever else, the Perkins, and you eat, you know, and you do it the same way every Sunday, okay? Emotion, then, is attractive, even if it's not healthy. And so um, the, there were... I think it was in 72. It started in about 70. But one of the first unthinkable places uh, that they, the charismatic movement really made inroads was Roman Catholic. Um, clear back when I think it was Hesburger was the president of Notre Dame, one of the first large charismatic Catholic uh, uh, assemblies was in... Notre Dame football stadium. It was huge. And, I mean, everybody was, all the religious um, magazines and whatever were just, what in the world is all this about? Um, it, was, it was a real 
ground-shaking, grassroots-changing movement. To this day, the uh, charismatic Catholics is still a pretty big movement. Um, There was then the, I don't know if anybody remembers, Full Gospel Businessmen's Association. Anybody ever hear of that? Okay, well, that was another um, growth that came helped spread um, the charismatic movement. And again, here's another thing that was, I think, attractive, but dangerous. And that was, in order to have full gospel business or whoever else, you, you almost made doctrine off limits. Um, and so, in order to get along with everybody, um, and in some cases, there are doctrines that we fight over that we shouldn't fight over. I mean, they're, they're non-essential. But in other cases, I mean, there are sev- serious doctrine uh, that we simply can't compromise on and say, oh, I'll make a difference. Let's just get along. Um, you can't. So anyway, the intentional de-emphasizing of doctrine that's divisive made everybody, we're, we're just back slapping, this is a great time. And it's easier then to, I guess you'd say, get along. But doctrine gets sacrificed. And good, clear thinking about the deity of uh, Christ, about the virgin birth, about the Trinity, about the doctrine of sin, salvation, end times, all those things are just kind of, well, it's just, We'll just hold hands in a prayer circle and we'll just, you know. Um, Again, it's putting emotion. And so if there is theology and doctrine much at all in the charismatic movement, it's arrived at emotion goes hunting in the scripture for a doctrine rather than doctrine dictating the the, um, parameters of of, um, emotion. It's turned around. So experience determines everything. I had a vision. Um, you know, there's books all the time. I, I, can't, I saw one just the other day. Somebody, it was 25 minutes in heaven. Somebody had some vision and they were flying and, and you know, all this. You know, what? <laughs> um, there's a couple people in the Bible, Jesus would probably be one of them, who's been to heaven and they can tell us about heaven and they did i don't need some paperback you know 14 page book that somebody self-published about some new vision they had i don't pay any attention to that stuff um it's the truth is it's an old unused word and everybody mispronounces it it's drivel now don't call it people say it's dribble no it's not dribble it's drivel Okay, um, it's just taking up space. Um, anyway, now um, the charismatic then uh, movement again because because of its no real barriers doctrinally and its emotionalism. And here's the thing that is I'd say a couple things about the charismatic. Um, I know, I've known missionaries since I can remember. 
we always had them, you know, stay in our house when they were traveling through. Um, my brother-in-law and sister were missionaries. Um, my brother-in-law grew up in Bolivia. His parents were missionaries in Bolivia for 40 years. Um, he can speak Spanish. He, he's an excellent preacher. I think he can speak better in Spanish than he can in English. I mean, he's he's unbelievable. He goes to he goes down to South America probably four or five times a year um, to preach at these big rallies and stuff because he's such a he's a a good preacher. B he he speaks English with a Spanish accent literally. Okay, but the the charismatics with their no emphasis on doctrine and and in many cases it's accompanied by pretty loose living. I mean, I don't mean to dredge stuff up, but I don't mean to, I want to be careful, none of us have landed safe on heaven shore yet. But all of the televangelists, what group, what doctrinal or church movement did 99% of them that got in trouble come out of? An emotionalistic atmosphere. And anyway, um, when you just loosen the bonds of propriety and, and rain on your emotions, you get problems, okay? Well, anyway, um, the greatest, uh, you, you could say the greatest uh, exodus in South America on the mission field went to the charismatic movement and came from Catholicism, which of course was is the main do, or, um, religion there, and um, conservative Protestant missions missionaries, they were just you know kind of devastated by because I think in some cases um, I don't want to get off onto this either for too long, but to me I don't know how everybody else feels, but to me. Latin American culture is really interesting. They are, and I know it's a stereotype, but they're, they're vivacious, happy. Um, um, I don't know, I can't explain it, but they're just enjoyable to be around. Um, and they got life. I mean, they're just talking like, you know. Well, that was attractive, charismatic, made inroads as compared to what most of them, trudged to the Catholic Church that was, for most of our, their lives, in Latin. You know? Um, here, boy, they've got, you know, the, the guitars and the singing and the clapping, and, and it just was a perfect fit culturally for that. So it, it, the, the Catholic Church and conservative Protestants lost a lot of adherence. Um, in the South American culture. Now, um, they are still today, charismatic movement, I think, is much, much larger. It hasn't put to business, put out of business, the old line Pentecostals, but they've mushroomed to where they're way bigger. Um, and have, there's hardly any denomination that they haven't uh, had some, some impact on. Um, their, th their thing is probably not quite as much speaking in tongues in a public service 
and having someone get up and interpret. It's more prayer language, small group prayer, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just characterized by emotionalism. Now, the last thing I would say regarding America, we are becoming a country this is a small, it seems like a small thing, but a, a part of speech that we say all the time today. Who says very often, I think such and such. It's just part of our language. I feel. Well, I feel. Now, I'm not being ultra picky, but it, it does say something. We don't think. Who do we, you know, I can get off here. Who do we vote for? People that look good and whatever cool means to us um, and are glib and they're good with one-liners and they're, uh, you know, they can be a hellion. We don't care. We'll vote for them. We don't think as a country. We don't think at all. Look at what, look at the interviews of the person on the street. People don't know who the presidents are. They don't know the history. They don't know who we fought in the Revolutionary War. They, they don't know anything. Now, they can tell you all about the Kardashians or somebody else, but they don't know anything about anything that matters. Well, that's a culture into which worshiping a God, which they have no real concept of, other than he's just a giant, he's a grandfather or a nice uncle that comes at Thanksgiving and he's always got lifesavers and beech nut gum to give the little kids and it's just great. And, oh, we just talk about unconditional love of God all the time. Well, God's love happens to be conditional. Now, the initial kindness is unconditional, but you're not going to get to heaven on unconditional love. I mean, we've, we've created this squishy kind of a, a, a God who's, who's just, he, oh, anyway, um, ripe for an emotional kind of religion. Jesus said, one of the, I heard Dr. Richard Taylor preach a great sermon on loving God with our mind. Jesus said, love him, love God with your mind. Why? Nobody even knows how to do that. You know, we don't know anything. We don't want to learn. When, clear back in 76, so that dates me, when I graduated from seminary, there were 50 of us in our graduating class, which for seminaries in America was a pretty good-sized class, okay? Um, and we're going to go out and preach the gospel and, and hopefully explain the scripture and um, help people understand what God's message is through his word. Two of us majored in theology, which is the study of God. Theos. It's the study of God. In seminary, two of us majored in theology. The rest, Christian education, where you, you measure, you, you literally, you sit in class and you talk about how, you know, how high should the chairs be in the little first graders class? Is it 12, 12 inches at best? Or, and, you know, and then the big popular thing back there, the number one thing was counseling. 
So everybody, everybody's going to be a counselor. Um, man. Anyway, I had a couple guys led by one, three years worth of seminary, full-time. He came to me before our big last week, huge finals. You had to do both, you know, tests. And, and then oral comprehensives, where they... You sit before the faculty and they fire all kinds of questions at you, you know, and they ask you what was the heresy of the Ebionites and what was, the, you know, this. Um, and this, I had, I had guys coming and asking me half hour before they went into their oral comprehensive. Could you draw on the board? Uh, could you draw me some kind of a chart that explains the doctrine of sin and twofold nature of sin? Could you write that? You know, you've been here three years. <laughs> but you majored in Christian counseling. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, that's a kind of culture, even in the church, that is ripe for blind emotionalism. Now, um, let's see here. I think... Let me just say this, and then we'll, we'll have to quit. And I think what's the best thing to do is quit now, maybe just a couple words of kind of um, let you know what we want to do next week. I'd like for you to read um, for next week, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Okay, those are the, well, 13, of course, is wedged in between the two as the real aim of Paul. But 12 and 14 deal with all of the gifts, um, really defines the gifts. It defines the purpose of all the gifts, all of which are very critical that we know why are they there, and look at them carefully, um, and look at the problem that was going on in um, Corinth that caused Paul to even address that in the first place. Okay? Um, then, I don't know, I didn't think of exactly which verses, um, but maybe you could read, maybe you could also read um, Acts chapter 2. That's the day of Pentecost, Peter's sermon. Now, let me tell you why I want you to read Acts 2. There is a rule in what is called um, well, I don't need to, you don't need to worry about these terms, but I, I don't know how else to say it. There's something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is interpreting scripture. Another one is called exegesis. Exegesis comes from the word ex, which is out of. It's to draw out of scripture the meaning, and so forth. Um, there's one major rule, well, more than one, but, but a major rule of interpreting Scripture is there are, for the great doctrines of the Scripture, there are lots of different places, Old and New Testament, where doctrines and so forth are taught. They're not all taught with the same clarity or the same length, the situation of the writer may have been different, but there's a rule then. You interpret 
you interpret every somewhat vague or difficult to understand or a bit confusing or puzzling passage through a clearer one on the same subject. Okay? Now, I will tell you why I want you to write it. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, um, as we read them mostly in English, of course, and different versions, there are a number of things in those chapters that require some thought and some, you know, careful, what in the world does that exactly mean? And, and mostly about the gifts, and in more specifically about the gift of speaking in tongues. Okay? Because in Charismatic and even in Pentecostal, that, that one thing arose to be the most prominent. Okay? Now, Acts chapter 2 could not be clearer in what the gift of speaking in other languages was. There is no passage that even comes close to Acts chapter 2. And it lists all of the languages and the people groups that the Spirit gave the disciples the capacity to speak to. Okay? And he didn't even use in, in, in Acts 2, it's so fine-tuned that the word languages which is really what tongues means. It just, mean, it just means languages. The word languages is not even used. It's dialect, which is even more particular. It's not just English, but it's saying it's Mississippi English <laughs> or whatever else. Okay? That's how specific the book of Acts is. And it is a known language, a known human language, documentable human group language. And I would say another thing. How many of us have read, as it, whatever, King James Version, NIV, you know, quite a few of them. Um, how many of you read, especially in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, how, how many of you have read and seen the word unknown? Unknown tongue or unknown language. Anybody? So let me see your hand. If you've seen the word unknown. Do you want to know that it's not in the original text? Anywhere. It's never mentioned. The word unknown. It's supplied by the translators. And if you watch carefully, in your Bible, virtually, I don't know any Bible other than, say, the paraphrases, not true translations, um, the word unknown will always be in italics, along with lots of other words scattered around. What does that mean? Italics in any version of Scripture is the honesty on the part of the translators. They're saying, we supplied this word. It's not in the original text, but we think it helps understand what the context of the whole verse or passage or paragraph is. So it's not a bad thing. But... That, unfortunately, has um, gone against, really, or made people treat the tongues spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 as wholly unrelated to Acts 2. That's a dreadful mistake. Because Peter 
talking in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit fell on other people, the, the Samaritans, the people, Cornelius, so forth, it says they, they spoke in tongues. Peter said they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. That's a critical verse. Peter and the other apostles who received the Holy Spirit in spoken tongues, it's listed. It's about 15 different groups. Babylonian, Phrygians, whatever. There wasn't any unknown language. None. It was documentable people group human languages. If, they, if it wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have said, it was just like God poured out his Holy Spirit on us. So Acts 2 is the lens through which we look, if we're going to be correct, at every other place, also in Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, to adequately understand it. So, any fast questions? We got, it's four minutes till the, the kids are loosed. Um, so I, I'll close with this. Um, the position of the holiness movement, the position of my position, the position of the domination that we're in, um, there is no such thing as a unintelligible language or ecstatic utterance that God endorses. Are there ecstatic utterances and so Yeah, but it doesn't mean they're of God. I'll throw this out real quick because we'll look at some of this next week because it comes up. The prophets of Baal spoke in ecstatic utterances. They weren't Christian. The Mormons spoke in tongues. All of the Greek and Roman gods, the proof that the priests and the prostitutes in Aphrodite's temple in Corinth were inspired by their God. They spoke in ecstatic utterances. Okay. That's there's there's a lot here that we need to uncover and we need to look at objectively. Um, is there such a thing as the gift of tongues? meaning known human languages being instantaneously given to somebody today, a language they never learned. Absolutely. This, this guy, Dr. Bonner, my professor, we got two minutes, was a missionary in uh, Haiti. Haiti's Creole, isn't it? Is that, okay. He was a missionary in Haiti before he became a seminary professor. Before that, he was a uh, he was president of what today is Oklahoma Wesleyan University in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. But at any rate, um, he told us publicly, told me privately, um, down in Haiti with the um, voodoo people, they spoke in ecstatic utterances. But he was a greenhorn missionary. He had not yet even completed. Uh, language school. Most cases they send you there and you learn qu real quick while you're on the field. 
he went out with the old veteran missionary that was to train him and that he was mentoring under. And they went out to an outpost where it was, you know, far from everywhere, and they were going to be staying out there over the night. They took four-wheel drive to get out there. And the, I don't know if they fed him something or whatever, but the veteran missionary just suddenly got very ill and couldn't preach at all. And Dr. Bonner, who wasn't the doctor then, but he said, God just gave him Creole. He stood up and he preached in Creole through that whole service, and he's still, he's now in heaven. He knew Creole the rest of his life, and he never learned it. That's Acts 2. That's legitimate. It was for the purpose of spreading the gospel. So there is a gift, but there's a lot that passes for that gift that isn't. Okay, it's 810. Let's, don't forget to do your homework. Read, read those chapters. Father in heaven, guide us. We're not, this isn't new to you, Lord. They're all through history. There have been a hundred different ways for us to run across um, errors. They may not be, literally. They may not destroy our souls, but they're, they're a hindrance, or they're, they, they stunt our growth, or they get us off on a sidetrack. So, Lord, help us keep to the main thing, the main thing, and walk in the middle of the road, and not be drawn away by anything that would kind of dilute our understanding of the truth. Keep us, Lord, I pray, safe. Bless all the rest of the activities tonight. And I pray that the seed sown in the little kids' hearts and the youth, that it would profit them. We pray it in Jesus' name.